This week on Writers Inc. For me, there were many moments along the way, almost stepping stones, but this was more than a stepping stone. You know, this was uh, finding you were stepping onto the world's most amazing island, <laughs> which you expected to be a pebble, um, because it certainly has catapulted me into a whole other world, getting to meet my writing heroes, you know, getting to know Anthony Horowitz and Charlie Higson getting to meet all of these amazing Bond readers and fans. So it's certainly taken me into a whole other um, kind of stratosphere or Bondosphere of, of writing. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. Kevin Tomlinson. And this is J.D. Barker. I'm watching the video here, and I'm pretty sure that Kevin just sang the alphabet song in his head just to make sure he was like saying his name in the right order there. <laughs> I have a list. <laughs> I have an actual – I typed up a list. I'm like, okay, I'm after these people, so I'll go then. Alphabetical order is hard. <laughs> It's been a weird morning. I just I just shot video of our, our robot dog. So we've got one of those Astros oh, from, cool. from Amazon. Um, and it, it just it discovered our chickens because um, they're, they're in the house right now. So my wife's got them in her office and they're in, in like one of those uh, plastic like kitty swimming pools. Um, she just puts them like, I don't know what she's got, like like wood chips or something down to the bottom. But like they're all in her office just kind of hanging out in there. And one of the things that they programmed Astro to do is basically figure out where the humans in the house actually hang out. And then the robot tries to hang out in those same places. So, it, it, you know, if, you, if you're in the living room all the time, the Astro will kind of use that as his hangout spot. So when he's not on his charger, he'll head in there and that kind of thing. Um, but I guess he sees the body heat. Like, I don't know how they actually figure that out. I'm guessing it's heat related, but he sees the heat from the chickens. So he keeps going into my wife's office and just like staring into this, swimming pool with the, the the chickens running around and it just it looks so weird um but like my <laughs> wife they started jumping out of the swimming pool so my wife got in the habit of closing her office door when she's not actually in there so i just got a video of astro basically getting off his charger and he runs down the hallway goes to her door and the door is closed and he's just like looking around at the door you know like because he can't reach the doorknob um then he gets aggravated and just kind of goes away but it's like it's it's funny because it acts like a real dog like it's like it's pissed off at cake i mean if it's going for the like real dog experience it's going to sit outside that door and whine until someone lets it in it doesn't whine yet <laughs> but i would not be surprised if, if they, they program something like that's that that's a in firmware there. update down the road it probably is speaking of firmware updates Pat patrick you want to tell us about cop camp hey everybody thank you jd um yeah, I am going to be co-hosting something called Cop Camp. The official title is Cops and Writers Interactive Conference. It's going to be in Appleton, Wisconsin, June 1st through the 4th. And what this is, it's going to be at the Fox Valley Police Academy, which is super high speed. It was built, I think, in 2016. So in police academy years, it's very, very new. It has all the latest bells and whistles they have a little city out in back where they have a full-size bank, a, hope, a motel, a convenience store. So you could practice like different scenarios. The SWAT team goes in and does, you know, different stuff. And they have an airplane 
they have an actual full-size jet that the FBI's HRT team uses like four times a year. They go and do, it's called tubular assaults going into like a tube shaped thing, you know, like potential hijacking stuff, whatever. But what this is, we're going to have, it's going to be about 30 to 40 people. I'm keeping it small because I want it to be interactive. That's the big thing. I want it to be interactive where the students all have a chance to do hands-on stuff. You can do as much or as little as you want. And I also have some really good guest speakers coming. I have Honoré Corder, John Norris. He was a uh, California game warden that was hunting down cartel members. I mean, it just it's a crazy, crazy story, but it, it, he's a very good public speaker. Annie Schwartz, she's the reporter that broke the Jeffrey Dahmer story. She's a Pulitzer Prize uh, nominee. And I have Adam Richardson. He he runs the uh, Writers Detective Bureau. He's a detective out in California, and he's been helping writers for a long time. He's got a podcast and some classes. He's going to be there. And I also have Sharon Rick. She's a retired DA in Wisconsin, so she can kind of give the legal side. So this is for people who one of the most common questions I get asked when I'm running the cops and writers stuff is I'm not a cop. I don't know any police people, but I want to write authentic police stories. How can I do this? So I came up with this, you know, where you can actually do, there's going to be, you know, they have a track with water cannons that'll try and like, you know, shoot you off the track. They have, uh, you could do like little mock squad chases. There's, um, a, it's called a fats machine. It's a firearm simulator machine where you're immersed. You have a gun and the gun is the actual weight, feel, trigger pull, that an actual like say a Glock or a SIG is and you're in scenarios and it could either be very benign or they can really ramp it up and it's shoot, no shoot situations. When is this again? June 1st through the 4th. Okay, cool. Yeah. Th th these kind of things are fun. I, I think a lot of people don't um, have, haven't actually tried this. A lot of writers, you know, like we, we get out there, we write these, these stories, but like until you actually put yourself in your, the, like the shoes of a cop, um, you know, it's very difficult to, to really get that right. And like, I, I actually did something like this down in Tampa. Um, and the first thing that I noticed, like they, they put me in the full on like SWAT gear. Um, and, and, like that stuff is heavy. You know, like if you're wearing yeah, like, a bulletproof vest, a helmet, um, you know, the, the weapons, everything that you're carrying, like just moving around in that is, is crazy heavy. And like, you know, that's something I try to bring across in the, the stories now, you know, just try to describe it a little bit more. So I, I think yeah. anytime an author can get immersive, it's useful. Yeah, we'll also do CSI stuff, K9, and we'll have the SWAT team come out. So like you said, you could kind of like try on some of the stuff and get a feel for it at least. They will not allow us to do live fire with guns for insurance reasons. But there are ranges in the area, and I'll be more than happy to take people. You know, there's writers that have never fired any kind of gun before. We've talked about this. I never have. I need to fire a gun. I've only fired paintball guns and BB guns. I've never fired a gun gun. <laughs> yeah, that's the same. That's the same. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just faster and louder. You know, I took Nathan <laughs> Van Koops out. He's a pilot down in Tampa. He's a writer. And... We did the trade-off where he said, okay, I'll, I'll take you flying and you take me shooting. And I'm like, absolutely. So we went shooting and the guy was a great shot. And he's only shot one other time, like a long time ago in his life. And I, a lot of that is because you, you don't have any bad habits. Like when, when I was in the academy, we had some guys that were, they never fired a weapon before. And some of them wound up being really, really good shots because 
they didn't come with all the baggage of, yeah, I've been shooting since I was 16, you know, which I have been, but I had some bad habits that I had to break. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, that starts June 1st through the 4th. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a blast. We got people coming from literally all over the world. I have a um, writer that's coming from New Zealand so she can experience this. All right. We'll put a link in the show notes in case anybody wants to register for that and um, let us know how it goes. Very cool. Thank you. Kevin, Kevin, what's in the news? Well, first, the spirit of JP is upon me. Um, Gen Zers (laughs) are bookworms. But they say they're shunning ebooks, and despite being known as tech savvy generation, Gen Z prefers printed books over ebooks. With eighty percent of books purchased by UK readers aged thirteen to twenty-four being print books between November twenty twenty-one and twenty twenty-two, uh, social media trends like Book Talk hashtag Book Talk on TikTok have contributed to the boom in book sales, with the U.S. hitting a record of over eight hundred and forty-three million units sold in 2021, uh, Gen Z readers uh, find value in the tactile experience of reading physical books, citing reasons such as reduced eye strain, better focus, and supporting local bookstores, which we know, of course, is that makes JP's heart glad. So, (laughs) and I'm right there with him. This whole story made me very happy. Yeah, yeah, just to see people making that switch. I, I think when like the Kindle first came out, you know, readers just sort of jumped all over it, you know, for a lot of reasons. You know, um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of people and I'm one of them have, you know, I've kind of gone back in the other direction. I prefer hold, holding a physical book in my hand and reading it, you know, mainly because if I'm reading on my phone or something else, I've got messages popping in. I've got emails going on. This is happening. That's happening. And it's not relaxing in any way. Um, so the only time I, I use a Kindle nowadays is if I'm traveling, you know, and I don't want to take two or yeah. three books in my my suitcase. Um, I'm noticing this with my daughter too. She's, you know, she loves her iPad, like to the point where we hide it from her. Like the only time she's allowed to really use it, if she goes on an airplane, she's allowed to take it um, or a long car ride, she can take it, but otherwise she doesn't get to use it. Um, but the other day we, we were at a restaurant and we had it with us um, and I tried to get her to read a book on there. And like, she was totally uninterested in reading a book on there. Like she likes having the physical hmm. book. Um, and I don't know if that's just a young kid thing or if it's just something that's coming around to, to that generation too. Um, she's all over it when it comes to games you know and that kind of stuff but like when it comes to reading a book she wants a physical book i find that fascinating because you know i i'm slow to change so it took me a long time to go to kindle because i I hate everything it took me a long time to go to mac it takes me a long time to i'm like i just like what i like and i'm not changing so i finally went to kindle and now i don't read physical books anymore um and just because of the space like i'm like oh look how much space i'm saving in my house because there is literally no more room in my house for books. Like we probably have like seven barristers and a bunch of bookcases. And I'm like, there's nowhere to put books. I'm going to have to buy a new house if I want more books. Yeah. So I've gone totally electronic, like strictly from a practical sense. So I just find that fascinating that um, younger kids are, are, are going, or the Gen Z's are going to physical again. Well, it's funny because my kids are all Gen Z'ers and they love physical books. You know, I've got a Kindle. My wife's got a Kindle. Yeah, I, I I love Kindles. You know, it's just so easy and convenient, like what you're saying, GD, you know, like for traveling and everything else, you just throw it in your bag and you're good to go. Backlighting and big font for us old folks. <laughs> yeah, big print, please. <laughs> but yeah, my kids, you know, they're dragging around books. And I looked at, you know, I did some research on this and Gen Z buys more vinyl than millennials. You know, the, yeah. they want albums. 
You see, cassettes are coming back too. I'm like, what is going on with that? Cassettes oh. are making a resurgence. <laughs> Mixtape. Oh, no. Everything <laughs> old is new again. <laughs> Polaroid. That's also popular. Uh, okay. Uh, Amazon's ending of Kindle newsstand could severely impact uh, sci-fi and fantasy magazines. Amazon's decision in the Kindle newsstand program in 2023 and shift magazines to Kindle Unlimited could severely impact science fiction and fantasy magazines as Kindle subscriptions have become a significant part of their overall circulation. Kindle Unlimited's payment model which is based on the number of pages read could lead to uncertain revenues for magazine publishers as readers often do not read every page of a magazine and may not finish certain stories. Uh, Sci-fi and fantasy magazines are trying to adapt to the change by urging former Amazon subscribers to migrate to other subscription services, exploring Kindle Unlimited for magazines or promoting direct subscriptions with publishers. This isn't just sci-fi fantasy, by the way. I mean, this is, I've talked to some folks who were really dependent on, um, on that program for magazine subscription income. So it's, it's a hit across that industry. You know, I honestly, I read this and I was like, what, what exactly is Kindle newsstand? I've never heard of this before. That's um, the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I had to look it up and I, you know, it's, it's obvious it's something that's, you know, it's been there for a while, but I haven't seen any real press on it. Uh, I, I even, you know, I'm on the Amazon site probably a couple times a day. I'm addicted to buying stuff on Prime and I don't even think I've seen anything come across on on there. Um, and frankly, in looking at it, like I would have probably used it, you know, because one of my biggest complaints, like I just I recently subscribed to Wired Magazine, the physical one, and they, I get it at my house. And one of the things that I actually hate about magazines, and this reminded me of that, is, you know, you'll read like the first two pages of a story and then like it's continued on page 43 or something. So you've got to flip yeah. the back right. of the magazine to finish it up and like that kind of stuff drives me insane and i'm guessing on this platform you could actually read the entire story all at once um yeah it's, it's too bad um you know I, hopefully there'll be some other you know evolution of this I, maybe they'll find some other way to, to to bring in that revenue and offset it there are definitely other newsstand uh types uh, programs out there apple has their newsstand uh, built into the news app and i actually use that because I get it as a part of a, a greater subscription to a whole bunch of stuff that they offer, you know, I'll use that for reading magazines. Um, the, unfortunately, they tend to try to follow the format of print magazines, JD. So I think sometimes they do actually interrupt your your reading experience. But overall, I, I like being able to clip those things and put them in because you can export uh, that, that, uh, article as a PDF or something, uh, or save it for later reading and things like that. So there's some advantages there. I can't do print magazines anymore. They just stack up for, you know, for months. I, I won't get to them for months. I have a stack to my left that I've had for like six years and I've, <laughs> I've yet um, to crack any of them open. <laughs> I wonder if Gen Z's are reading these. Yeah. Are they reading the physical ones? Yeah. The, you know, I used to read the physical uh, sci-fi and fantasy magazines before they went uh, digital, but I've never used um, the Amazon site. I always read them direct, and they most of them have a model where you can read some of the stories free, and then, you know, there's a bigger name or something. You pay for that story per story. So, yeah, it never would have occurred to me to look on Amazon for those because I just went from physical to direct subscriptions from the site. So, Yeah. I might have read them if I'd known about it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the problem again. <laughs> Moving on. Turns out that America's most 
quote, recession-proof business is bookstores. Uh, bookstores are projected to be the most recession-proof type of U.S. business in 2023, with a 43% increase in the number of bookstores during the latter part of the pandemic. Bookstores experienced steady wage growth during both the pandemic at uh, plus 16% and the Great Recession at plus 13% and have moderate startup costs of around $75,000. The least recession-proof business uh, businesses rather include furniture stores, women's clothing boutiques, and this one surprised me: taxi and rideshare services, uh, used car dealerships, and housing construction companies. As people tend to delay big or unnecessary purchases during a recession, uh, and I have to add JP's note that the spirit of JP is standing on their soapbox telling you that supporting your local bookstores and finding a way to form a local community between booksellers and authors is the future. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think this is great. I love the fact that bookstores did well, but at the same time, we were all locked in our houses. You know, like what, yes. what are you going to do with that time? You know, I'm guessing if they were to, you know, run a similar study, video game, you know, was, was probably up, you know, the streaming services people were paying, you know, out the yin yang oh, for, yeah. you know, because you just ran out of content. Um, I, I'm really curious to see where this is, you know, two years, three years down the road, you know, hopefully after everything is back to, you know, some type of semblance of normal again. Um, hopefully they, they stick with it. But, you know, like I think we've seen it even like in Facebook ads and click through and stuff like that. You know, people were reading insane amounts of content when they were locked in their house because there was literally nothing else to do other than talk to their family. And a lot of people don't want to talk to their family. They'd rather bury themselves in a book. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious where this is going to be in a couple more years. Yeah. And I'm not surprised about the women's clothing thing because I don't think I've shopped in a store for four years. I've become like an online Women's catalog shopper. Remember you said that I have the catalogs in the flip floor. And I'm yeah. like, oh my goodness, yes. I've become like a grandmother. I order catalog clothes now. So <laughs> that, okay, last, over the Christmas, uh, on the run up to Christmas last year, Amazon sent out a, a catalog that reminded me so much of like the old Sears and Roebuck catalog. Um of just random things that they they collected uh, and, and put in here and said, you know, you can find this on on the site. Uh, so I think maybe they also sense that people are looking for that more tactile experience. Yeah. There there are actually, I, I researched this because we got one of those catalogs too. And it turns out Amazon's actually got multiple catalogs out in different formats. So it's based on your buying habits from, from Amazon. That's basically what they send you. So like the one that we typically get the most is a toy catalog. It's all toys from So from do Amazon. I. That's weird. Yeah, you but they've, they've also got one. catalog every week <laughs> yeah. now. They're like, here, buy more clothes, please. <laughs> yeah, they've got another one that's geared towards women women's fashion, another one towards men's fashion, um, you know, so based on your, your buying habits on, on Amazon, they're, they're targeting. But yeah, the first, as soon as I saw it, my daughter brought it in to show me all these toys in the, the book that came in the mail. And I was like, Hey, this is a Sears catalog. I remember the Sears catalog. Yeah, that that was awesome. It was like 500 pages of random stuff you didn't know you needed. Um, I kind of loved it. I, I, I mean, I, 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 yep. getting this in the mail was like a nice little nostalgic treat. And then I didn't use it to order anything, but, um, you know, I was glad to have the book. I kept it. I still, it's in that pile of magazines off to my <laughs> left. Yeah, I never liked One thing that. to remember, though, is that one thing to remember is that bookstores sell more than just books. And I don't know if this is factored at all because, like, the bookstore For that now. I go to, like our local bookstore, I mean, they have maple syrup, they have, you know, pastries, they have 
I bought a pound of ground beef there yesterday. There's a look there, the farmer's market that comes by every Sunday. They're pretty close and they have a relationship with the farmer who sells this stuff. So they keep, they have it frozen back in their freezer and you can buy frozen ground beef. So I'm, and it's That's, really good. I think you're, yeah, you're making the case. You're making JP's case though, I think in that, with that, because what, what that is, is a, now it becomes a community thing, which Absolutely. is much more what places like that were before uh, Barnes and Noble and others right. uh, kind of came on the scene. So you get an eclectic blend of local culture that way. So it's, it's that much more of an argument that you should be supporting local bookstores. Yeah. If I'm going to throw my money for that, I'd rather do that. I, I don't think the local bookstore is ever going to be my target for lunch meat. Like I just, I, I don't think I'll be able to make <laughs> that. You're not living back there. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's a little, yeah. That, that's sort of like it, buying candy bars at, at Lowe's near Home Depot. Like I'll go in to buy something. <laughs> if you, you buy a Snickers bar off the rack and then you get it in the car and it's as hard as a rock because it's been there for four years. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not going there. I, I'm, I'm probably going to buy lunch meat anywhere I find it, honestly. So I'm good. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, you got to watch your cholesterol, Mister. So you know you got to. Yeah, he's that's good what I now hear. With his cholesterol, he's got that fixed. Yes, we're very proud of him. Awesome. Okay, uh, before we get to our interview, we want to give a wonderful shout out to our sponsor, Master Writer. Master Writer is a powerful collection of writing tools and reference assembled in one easy-to-use program. Included are word families, phrases, synonyms, rhymes, definitions, figures of speech, pop culture a searchable Bible, and intensifiers, a unique collection of intense descriptive words. Why struggle to find the right word when you can have all the possibilities in an instant? While a computer can't compete with the mind and imagination of a writer, the mind can't compete with the word choices of Master Writer. When the two work together, great things happen. Check it out today at masterwriter.com. So, J.D., who's up this week? Um, this week, we've got Kim Sherwood. She's a novelist and lecturer in creative writing at the University of Edinburgh. Her latest book is in the James Bond universe, and it's called Double or Nothing. So here she is, Kim Sherwood. Kim Sherwood, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Actually, I was going to start out with Kim. Kim Sherwood. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to ask you a question that I usually ask towards the middle or end of an interview, but I'm going to start out with this question. Where were you and what were you doing when you got the news that you'd be writing in the James Bond universe? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose there were two moments, really. The first was I was I was just at work. I was teaching and I was actually having a really stressful day. My agent called me and I, um, you know, uh, bored on about my stressful day. And then eventually she said, there was a reason I was calling. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> the Fleming estate would like to talk to you about writing Bond. And I, I honestly thought this was a practical joke. Uh, <laughs> I was just in my <laughs> office at work going, what, what? <laughs> I was mishearing. So that was the first I had been... They invited me to send them some ideas. I I wrote them a letter with some ideas, and and they'd they'd enjoyed my first novel. They knew I was a fan, but they also asked, or or my agent suggested, that I send anything I had that sort of demonstrated how much I love Bond, because of course this is the Fleming's family legacy. Sure, it's really important to them that you know that you are a big fan yourself. And luckily, I had 
a bit of homework I'd done when I was 13, a school report that my mum had kept. <laughs> and it was homework. Um, our English teacher asked us to write about an author we admire. And I'd made this whole booklet on Ian Fleming with pull-out flaps and illustrations. Wow, when you were 13. Yeah, so I, I photocopied that and I sent that to the Fleming family along with my ideas. And I, you know, I just said this would literally be a lifelong dream come true. And they liked the ideas and, and we met for lunch. But the moment I knew that it was really happening was uh, on another exciting night. I was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, which is a um, sort of big deal here for young writers. And I was um, at the award ceremony at the London Library. And my agent took me to one side and said, um, I've just had news. The, the Flemings want you. We're doing it. Uh, and, and it was amazing. And then as it happened, I didn't win the award, but I was going around with the biggest grin on my face. Everybody thought I was the world's most gracious loser. <laughs> but I was just so over the moon. But I couldn't tell anybody. It had to be a secret. So for a long wow. time, I had to keep it a secret. So was this the light bulb moment? Was this the moment in your writing career when you knew that, hey, I've made it, you know, this is, this can be a viable career for me. This is going to catapult me, you know, into a different <laughs> you know, universe. Yeah. Is, yeah. was that in your mind or did, has that happened before your writing career or um, what did that look like? Question. I think that you, you, um, you've probably had other writers say this too, but, but for, for me, there were many moments along the way, almost stepping stones, but this was more mm. than a stepping stone. You know, this was, uh, finding you were stepping onto the world's most amazing island because it certainly has catapulted me into a whole other world getting to meet my writing heroes you know getting to know Anthony Horowitz and Charlie Higson getting to meet all of these amazing Bond readers and fans so it's certainly taken me into a whole other um, kind of stratosphere or Bondosphere of, of writing. <laughs> Bondosphere, um, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And there are these little moments, you know, it's, it's, um, in some ways it's like a whirlwind. And then there are moments where I try and stop and uh, pause and drink it in because there are these moments where it all feels very real suddenly and I feel incredibly lucky. So launching Double or Nothing at the British Library was one of them, which is my favorite building in the world. And, to be sitting there in the British Library about to be interviewed by Charlie Hickson with a martini in my hand and 150 people in the audience, I really did stop and think, wow, this is my life. You know, so that that was a pretty amazing moment. And there have been there have been moments like that along the way, you know, attending they do a special film premiere for the Fleming family and they bring along their writers. So um, attending that with Anthony and Charlie and all of us going off in a corner and, and talking about how challenging it is to write Bond villains. You know, I feel like I was floating out outside of my body and looking down and thinking, wow. God, if, I, if my 13-year-old self could see me now, you know. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. It really is. So you're a professor at university. What did your students say when you told them? It's <laughs> like, yeah, your teacher here is um, going to be writing James Bond books. Did, what kind of reaction <laughs> did you get? It was really funny because... For a long time, it was secret, as I said, and my students would say, what are you writing? What are you working on? And this was during lockdown. So it was online teaching. Mm. A lot of my students are American and they would ask me, what are you what are you working on? And I'd say, actually, it's a secret. I'm not allowed to say. And I would call it my commercial project. I don't know why I kept saying, oh, just my commercial project. <laughs> like I have a kind of side hustle selling socks or something. But um, 
my American students particularly latched onto this idea. One of them said to me, are you ghostwriting for Harry and Meghan? And they were completely <laughs> convinced that that was, that was the only sort of secret a British writer could have. <laughs> um, and nothing I said could move them off this idea. So I think they were possibly slightly disappointed that I wasn't ghostwriting for yeah. Harry and Meghan. <laughs> um, but when I finally could tell all the students... It was so lovely. They were all so excited. I walked into the room the day after um, it was. No, it was the Monday after it had been announced, and it was in all the press here, national press over the weekend, the book deal and everything. And I went into class, and they all gave me a round of applause. So that was very sweet. Ah, that you win coolest teacher ever award. <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah, that's right. My teacher writes James Bond books. All right. So the big question. What did you do to prepare yourself to write a James Bond novel? Oh, well, that's a good question. In some ways, I've been preparing all of my life because, you know, wherever I go, I'm always thinking, oh, if you were a spy and you had to sort of get a message secretly to someone in this hotel, where would you go? And what would be your exit? And so I'm always kind of constructing those stories. Okay. When I found out that it was actually happening, I reread all of the books, rewatched all of the films. And I was looking for, with the books, I was looking for threads that Ian Fleming had set running that perhaps he hadn't tied off that just intrigued me mm. or I felt I could modernise or adapt in a certain way. Because the brief from the Flemings, the sort of two things they wanted was to modernise it, so bring it into the 21st century on the page and to broaden out the, the cast of characters and to have a kind of ensemble cast of double O heroes. So I was looking for, of course, any mention that Fleming has of other double O's, mm. but also thinking, how can I bring this double O section into the modern day? What can I do with those essentials? Because I think there are certain things that you have to have in a Bond story for it to feel like a Bond story. Right. So how can I bring them uh, into the 21st century on the page? And then where might there be opportunities for me to maybe do something new or something that hasn't been done before? So I was kind of looking for those those threads I could pull on and looking for any new space that I could occupy. Okay. You know, I was thinking right away I would have to rent an Aston Martin and drive that around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In your book, I know you have, it's an Alpine. Did you uh, take it out for a spin? Well, my terrible confession is that I can't actually drive, which I realize is awful for a bond writer. Um, but when the so the head of the Fleming estate collects Alpine cars, she's an amazing woman. And she said to me, could you make the car an Alpine? Could 003's car be an Alpine? So I said, yes, absolutely. I'd love to. But for my writing process, it will be essential that someone takes me out in a sports car for a absolutely. day. That'll be a really inherent part of the process. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I was very lucky an actual um, racer took me out in the Alpine in Edinburgh. But it was really funny because I couldn't, it, at that point it was still a secret. So he'd been told I was a VIP and his colleagues were sort of, um, you know, imagining that I was there to buy the car and he was taking me out and he said to me, so what do you do? And I thought, what am I, what am I going to say? This is such a weird scenario from his perspective. I can't even drive, but I'm looking at buying one of these cars, it seems. So I said, oh, well, I'm I'm writing um, a, a book about cars. And then he looked a bit confused and said, but you can't drive. 
So yes, that is true. That is true. It's going to be quite a limited book about cars, uh, <laughs> yeah. but we 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 went out. And then I thought I'd better deflect. I've been too obvious. So I asked him loads of questions about how accurate Fast and Furious is to throw him off the scent. Sure. <laughs> See, you are a spy. Look at that. You're right? you're, yeah, you're deploying cool. spy techniques. Look at you. <laughs> oh, so he took me out and. Uh, for those who don't know, Edinburgh, the centre is very uh, cobbled old streets, very windy. So we were going quite slowly and, and the car's very low slung. So you really feel that vibration through your body. And that was really helpful for the writing. So you get that sense of what's it mm -hmm. like just in your bones to be in this car. And then we got out to a straight road and without telling me, he just gunned it. <laughs> and I left my skeleton, you know, somewhere blocked. <laughs> oh, and it was just so fun. I'd never been in a sports car before. It was so fun. I would say, could we just do that again? We do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm writing notes like it goes really, really, really fast <laughs> to, yeah. to try and just to kind of get those details in. So, yes, uh, my next car will be an Alpine. Very good. So another part of any James Bond story is the exotic locales. You know, there's always globe hopping. Yeah, mm -hmm. Did you do anything to prepare yourself that way? Did you tell the Fleming estate, hey, I've got to go to this exotic <laughs> location. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. have to get there. I demand GoldenEye in Jamaica. Yes. No, uh, well, it was, it was a really challenging time in some ways to write a Bond story because I was writing it through. We had three lockdowns here in the UK oh, okay, um, sure. where, where you just couldn't leave your home for some of it or, you know, go beyond your block. And trying to write a story that's all about travel and freedom and right. escape uh, when you're just stuck in the four walls was a challenge. But it also was, in some ways, I think, quite a life-saving escape for me because I was imagining myself in all of these exotic locations around the world mm. but it did present a challenge for research usually usually for my research i'd always want to go somewhere um so i used party locations that i'd been to before so the berlin sections were drawing on um uh, past trips to berlin so things like that i was thinking okay well what have i kind sure. of already got in my tool bag i can use and then for places that i couldn't go um i'll always try and you know read as much as i can research as much as I can and talk to people who've been to those places. And I'm very lucky that my my dad is a tour manager for rock and roll bands. So he's been Oh really? That's that's place. a great job. That sounds cool it's at a least. Great job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's been anywhere in the world that they play music, basically. Um so I would I'd text him and I'd say, have you been to any, you know, um post USSR states that are related to the space industry? And he'd say, yeah, what do you want to know? And I'd say, what do the hotels smell like? Uh, and then he would give mm. me those details because it's those details that I think make something come alive. And that Ian Fleming was so good at, you know, yes. those vivid journalistic details. I totally agree. So does he just go around with different rock bands or is it a specific rock band that he uh uh, many, to. many all of my life. So when I was younger, it was Depeche Mode and Susie and the Banshees and okay. you know, that whole era. And um, now he's out with Louis Tomlinson, so completely uh, different genre. Oh, yeah. Um, the Mars. Um, so, yeah, all over the world and wow. all over the musical spectrum. Wow, that is so cool. Love it. So, you know, I think it's a tough spot for you to be in. You know, okay, now I'm going to it's great. You know, I'm Ian Fleming's estate contacts me and I'm going to write these James Bond books, but on the surface, that seems incredible. You know, it's extraordinary and it is, but then after the excitement wears down a little bit, was there a part of you that's like, wow, this is going to be a tough spot. 
you know, did you feel any kind of pressure to deliver this James Bond book? Yeah. And if so, how did you deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of pressure. I think I was really lucky that it was a secret for so long and mm. that it was in lockdown. So I couldn't even be tempted to tell people I was seeing, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> because it that secret, I think in some ways it helped me pretend that this was just me. And I've been imagining that I could write Bond all of my life. So this, you know, it was almost like playing out um, a fantasy or an imaginary game when you're a kid, you know, right. and that helped take the pressure off. Once the news was released, and that was when I was just coming towards um, editing the book and, and and finishing it up, then then the pressure really ratcheted up because I went from being you know completely secret and anonymous um, to having all these opinions. I remember the the news was released, and that weekend one of our national newspapers did a big double spread asking other writers what they would do if they were me. So then I was reading this double spread, looking at all these, you know, these names I really respect. Oh, boy. Oh, that is a good idea. And oh, oh, God, I've, I've got something quite different than that. You know? <laughs> so then you, you do have other people's views. And and of course, all of the fans, uh, you know, James Bond belongs to everybody. So sure. everybody feels that that ownership. Everybody has a sort of anxiety, I think, around is Bond in good hands? Um, will this character that we love be looked after? Mm -hmm. So there is a pressure to that, but I think it's a privilege as well. Yes. So when you were writing the story, how did you balance this into a Kim Sherwood novel, but keeping the spirit of Ian Fleming alive, you know, with mm -hmm. your writing? How did you do that? That was really important to me. I wanted to honor Fleming's vision Mm -hmm. while bringing it into the modern day. So I thought about, you know, I can't write like Ian Fleming. Only Fleming can write like Fleming. Right. Um, like, only write like me. But I thought about where are our points of commonality. And because I loved Fleming's, writer, Fleming's writing since I was a teenager, as I said, I was really influenced by his writing. So I tried to think about, well, what were those influences? I think some of Fleming's imagery is very uncanny and unsettling and shocking, and vivid, and I wanted to bring that in. How he uses a on, an omniscient point of view to enter into different characters' perspectives. I wanted to bring in that kind of sense of multiple voices. So I looked at our almost our shared DNA of our styles, and then I thought, and where can I sort of bring in myself? And a lot of it was just thinking about. What what have I always found exciting um, in terms of spy stories, in terms of adventure stories? What have I always kind of fantasized if one day I had the chance to write about? So that's where a lot of the, um, particularly the Berlin sections, which kind of almost draws on the Cold War history, mm -hmm. which I find really fascinating. Um, and meeting in Hotel Adlon and, you know, all of those things that that really draws on a lot of my um kind of interests and what really grabs my imagination about spy fiction. Okay. Now, if Double or Nothing goes to theaters, would you want to write the screenplay? Oh, that's a good question. Um, wow. Well, people will know, of course, that the the Broccoli family and the Fleming family look after the separate sides of it. So mm -hmm. um, they, uh, of course, they have a really positive working relationship, but they, sure. they let each other kind of get on with their own things. Um but if it did, I think I, I would certainly find it strange someone else writing my characters. I, I realize that's what I'm doing to you, Fleming. So perhaps that sounds hypocritical. <laughs> but, but, you know, to me, it's like um, they've lived in my head for so long. It's like they're 
my family. So to, to let them right. go to someone else would be, I think, quite surreal. And I really love writing in those voices and getting to do more of their dialogue um, would be would be really exciting, I think. So, yeah, I think I'd if the opportunity was ever there, you know, I'd, I'd certainly feel strange about someone else doing it. <laughs> OK, now music is a part of any James Bond movie. It's it's huge. You know, did you play a bunch of, you know, music from all the different James Bond movies while you were writing or before you wrote the book? Yeah, I do. I use, um, you know, on Spotify, there's like public playlists. Mm -hmm. I use someone in America made this James Bond playlist and that's just the one I alighted on. It's not in chronological order. It's in their own order that they've chosen, the curator of the list. And I listen to that every time I, I write double O or I edit I listened to it just on a loop. So whoever curated this playlist must think, who is this girl <laughs> in the UK just obsessively <laughs> listening to my playlist? Um, to the point that, you know, Spotify does that, your year wrapped. Um, somehow the algorithm didn't work out that what I was doing was listening to James Bond. So it's uh, your favorite genre is um, easy adult standards. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I felt was an insult to Tom Jones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, listening to the music is really integral just to feeling that, you know, that electricity that you feel in the cinema when the theme Absolutely. first, in, yeah. you know, that, that's what I'm trying to capture. So the music really helps with that. I agree. Were you sipping some Bollinger or a martini <laughs> that was <laughs> shaking that stir? Been moments. <laughs> okay. We had some very nice uh, martinis at the launch, which they put out on the, um, on the sort of stage for us. and. Um, the interviewer asked me a question um, are you afraid that uh, some of the right wing media might take against some of the more perhaps progressive elements that you've put into the book so I did like a comedy sip of my martini I was like oh let me think about that I did a sip of my martini <laughs> and I hadn't realized that the bartender had made it like very strong oh okay <laughs> but it was like a hammer to the head and I had to go oh okay it was 150 people sitting in front of me <laughs> Maybe I won't take a second sip. <laughs> <laughs> you know, personally, I was I remember from Casino Royale the one scene where he um orders a bottle of Bollinger. Yeah. And yeah. I love champagne. I absolutely love champagne. You know, dry as a desert. Yes. And I'm like, well, I have to get some Bollinger now. So just yeah, you know, absolutely. I this is how big of a James Bond geek I am. Then I have fallen in love with it. Nothing else compares now. Quite right, quite right. They did that nice um, 007 special one, um, which my family got me for um, finishing the book, which was really nice. I, when I finished writing the book, which was um, a kind of 2 a.m. moment, <laughs> racing against the deadline, I'd had COVID. I, I, oh, I had boy. quite long COVID. Um, and the sort of lasting symptom was the room spinning around me. So at the end of Double or Nothing, for people who read it, um, you'll see it's all quite frenetic and the characters probably feel at many points like the room is spinning around mm -hmm. them because that was what was happening to me <laughs> as I was writing. And then I finished and went and popped that champagne and that was a very good moment. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think, yeah, I have that cask where, where you push the button yeah. and the bottle comes up. Oh, I just yes, yes, I yes. love <laughs> that. It's a, yeah, it's a Bollinger 2011, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. just Fabulous. If you have a chance, you need to drink that. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> so as far as music goes, let's talk a little more about that. I can't imagine a bond without music. You know, mm. 
you're thinking you know the big orchestra with the with the brass and the strings and it just captivates you and then there's the these pop music that is integrated into it and they they've always done a great job you know madonna uh uh-huh tom jones rita coolidge paul you know wings you know it just Cheryl Crow, Adele, Garbage, you know, Duran Duran, Tina Turner. If it was up to you and you're going to write this, you know, you already wrote the book and maybe you're going to write the screenplay. If it goes to the big screen, who would you want like as a pop star seeing mm. that first iconic song that just, oh. you know, just labels it? That's a really good question. I have two answers. The first okay. is. Uh, I'm a massive Tom Jones fan. I saw him live uh, for the first oh, time. Oh, very time. cool. Yeah. Um, in Edinburgh under the castle. It was amazing. So if Tom Jones wanted to do another one, and if I could be in the room with him while he recorded it, <laughs> that would be sublime. Uh, my other answer is um, actually my friend Georgia, who's an amazing um, kind of drum-based pop star now. When we were in primary school, she would always say, I'm going to be a musician playing the drums. And I'd say, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to write spy stories and it's actually happened <laughs> so <laughs> i would i'd ask her if she would uh, write me a song outstanding so if time or money was not a consideration for a, a project that you could work on what would it be oh that's such a good question hmm. if time or money wasn't a consideration it's I just a perfect on- world <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a perfect world. world. Yeah, you have all yeah. the time in the world. Yeah. Well, um, I've just had another novel come out here, A Wild and True Relation. Just came out last week. I've been writing this book for 14 years. Wow. Um, obviously with other things in between, but it was sure. supposed to be my first novel. And now it's come out, my third novel. And it's a kind of um literary historical feminist smuggling adventure set in Devon in the 18th century. And it features real historical uh, characters in sections who kind of pass on the smuggling story down the centuries. And one of them is Dr. Johnson. And he just features in a chapter or two. Dr. Johnson wrote the dictionary and he's my um, spirit guide. We launched the book in Dr. Johnson's house. And one day I would like to attempt to write his whole life as a novel. I think it would probably take... um, mm, 10 20 years um okay so so, uh if i had yeah time and money went a consideration i would go and sit down um in the british library surrounded by papers and uh, not come out for a long time looking back on your writing career because how long i mean you said you've been writing since you were 13 Mm. right or maybe before then i don't know yeah yeah what what advice would you have given like say 21 year old Kim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as the writing goes or somebody else, that's just starting out. Mm. Um, you know, I was so lucky. I've been writing all of my life. And as a kid, I would say, I want to be a writer. And I was so lucky that nobody in my family said to me, that's silly or, well, you know, you'll need a plan B or that's mm. no way to earn money. And so that's, I guess that's just a bit of advice I'd give anybody who knows an aspiring writer, just, just to be encouraging and to, um, and to say, yeah, put, put the work in and, and the passion in and, and see what happens. And, and, 
because that that dream can be a little bit delicate and it means everything if you have people around you kind of encouraging you so I, I guess that's something I'd say but looking back to yeah when I was 21 I was just about to start my MA in creative writing um and I guess I would say have faith in yourself because there were points where my faith was shaken because I, I went from, I think this is probably true for lots of people. If you're creative as a kid and a teenager and you, and you do have that encouragement around you and you have passion and play and permission to take risks and experiment and maybe get it wrong sometimes, that's okay. Then you go into a kind of institutional setting. So I studied literature with creative writing at undergrad, then I studied creative writing at MA. And then you'll you'll have lots of people's opinions on you and you'll have people saying it should be this way or it should be that way or there's a wrong and a right way and pressure will come in and it can be easy to lose the faith and, and lose your sense of your own creative process and your own direction. So I think if I could go back and speak to myself, I would just say have, have faith in yourself. And was it, I came back to it, but it, it took a while. Very good. So what's next for you? What's next for Kim? Well, I am just uh, just finished the latest round of edits or the first round of edits on the second double O novel, um, which is a really interesting process because usually you would or typically you would work with one editor. But for this set of books, there's the US editor, the UK editor, and then the whole Fleming family. Um, wow. giving me feedback so okay it's a bit like a melting pot you know you pour everybody's yeah. ideas and then you see what bubbles up so I've just I've just sent the manuscript back to them and um, then we'll, we'll keep discussing ideas and pretty soon I'll start writing the the third the third double a book so wow it's all about to go so for those who are thinking about doing collaborations or you know have multiple editors like what you're talking about or interests you know, that have a little bit of control or say in the book or want to, you know, have some input. What's the easiest way to put all that together? Because that seems like a lot of moving parts. Yeah, it is. It's It can be challenging, especially if you are used to that one-to-one -one relationship. Right. Um, what I found that's really helpful is um, to work out who in the who in the group, if you're working with like a really big group of people, who in the group do you find it's helpful to just say have a letter from an editorial letter? Who do you find it's useful to sit down and have a Zoom cup of tea with them? Who do you find it's more useful to actually like go and have lunch in person and talk through ideas? Because everybody will bring something different to the team. And there'll be there'll be these touchstones for you who can offer different things in different moments when you need them. So it's about building relationships, I think. And that can be challenging, particularly, you know, if you're working at a distance from people, you know, if, if some of your team are in America, for example. Sure. Um, but that's, I think, one of the, the blessings and silver linings of what we've all gone through in the last few years. Um, you know, being able to have a Zoom cup of tea with someone. Right. Absolutely. Um, probably sounds terribly British to your audience, but, uh, you know, that, that can be a, a really great way to build those relationships. And I do think that the editing process in particular relies on relationships that have trust in them because you're sharing your creativity with someone and that's inherently vulnerable when it's in that raw stage. Right. Right. Okay. 
Well, Double or Nothing comes out in the United States on April 11th. Do you have anything else for us? Oh, well, um, if people uh, want to want to follow me, um, I'm at Kim T. Sherwood on Twitter and Instagram. I also have a newsletter on Substack, Girl with the Golden Pen, A Wild and True Relation. My next novel has just come out here in the UK as well. So if you want to order that from the UK, you can. That's a good swashbuckling adventure. And then the next double O book will be will be with you soon. So um, if you enjoy Double or Nothing, you won't have long to wait. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Kim. Thank you. This has been lovely. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. Later Press is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at LaterPress.com. Do you guys remember the moment you realized your career took off or was about to take off or there's that potential to take off where you were and what you were doing? It's like 20 minutes ago. I had that realization. <laughs> just just happened. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, like, you know, I, I wrote Forsaken, Indie published the novel, Publishers Weekly put a story out on it. Um, when that story hit and I saw the, the sales start going through the roof, but that's when I knew that that something big was was happening. Um, getting a phone call from an agent, you know, for a big sale too, uh, you know, with uh, Fourth Monkey, that was that was a big moment for me. I think uh, when I, because I had been writing sci-fi uh, mostly at the front end of my career, and uh, I had taken the dare to write a thriller uh, on that podcast with Nick Thacker. Uh, I saw so when that hit, like suddenly that was like my big seller and it was a sustained big seller. Um, that's, that's when it kind of clicked for me. I, I, I couldn't tell you the exact moment, but I know I was sitting in an RV in Colorado Springs, uh, when it happened. So, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but I started, uh, writing serial fiction for Velda for Amazon when it launched. Um, you know, just for fun. It's like a new thing. I'm like, I'll give it a try. I'm going to write this. Um, and I'm not sure if my friend who I'm going to talk about right now listens to this podcast. So I'm sorry in advance if you're listening, but we were at a con. Uh, he's a traditionally published writer. He has quite a few books out and he was interested in this and talking about, uh, you know, finances. And I'm like, Oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll share with you what I'm making. And he said, you're making more money than I am. And I just thought about that for a minute and I went, huh? So I guess that was the moment I'm like, maybe this is working out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have not had a lightning strike moment. You know, I, I've had bumps in my sales or where you're like, wow, this this is cool. This this could work. But I was at 20 books and I was at the Rams head bar with Cecilia Mecca and her husband, Mike, and a bunch of other people. And we were talking and I didn't know them very well. She's a um, romance author. And she's got a great story because she was on track to becoming a professor. She went to Penn State and she was a teacher and she, she got her doctorate while she was teaching. Like during the day, she was going to night classes, got her doctorate and she was going to be a professor. And then she started writing Scottish medieval romance. And I'm like, oh, please, come on. And I'm, her husband's like, no, look, he pulls out his phone and he shows me the numbers and I'm, my jaw dropped. I'm like, Holy, yeah, okay. This is a very real thing. 
And you know, first of all, an indie doing that well. And secondly, it's like, maybe, you know, I don't know about the romance world, but holy cow, it's like a super niche thing, but man, and right then and there, I was like, okay, this, this could actually happen. What do you guys do to prepare to write your books? You know, something, you know, I was asking, by the way, Kim was just so much fun to um, interview. She's such a nice person. She was very, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and she was fabulous. She was really, really fun. And it was a great interview. And I was asking her how, what she did to prepare. You know, she's writing James Bond. So she read every James Bond book. You know, she listened to all the music. She listened, you know, she saw the movies, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something special that you guys do? Um, Probably the closest experience I've ever had is writing that prequel to Dracula because I, I read everything that Bram Stoker mm. ever wrote. I, I listened to the audiobook for Dracula on a constant repeat the whole time I was writing it just to try and get his, his vocabulary and his cadence and that kind of thing into my head. Um, I can totally see where, where Kim is coming from. You know, like it would be so easy to immerse yourself in James Bond and just kind of, you know, like she was probably carrying a concealed weapon at some point, you know, like you could go over the top so easily with, with that. Um, uh, but I think to write in that interview or that, that, that universe, I would probably have to do that too. I mean, the, the music and, and, you know, I definitely go back to all the Ian Fleming books and I, I think she went about it the right way too. I mean, cause Ian, he really did leave a lot of like dangling threads out there, things that he felt he was going to pick up later. Um, he didn't close everything out in every book. So, you know, the, the, they've been mined, you know, quite a bit, but there's still a few out there, you know, so you can go back through those, try and find something that he created and started, but never actually finished and use it to, as a, a takeoff point for, for whatever you're doing. Um, I've got a couple friends at this point that have written in for the James Bond universe and, and they all have nothing but really good things to say about the Ian Fleming estate and the family and everybody involved in that i was just jealous of her uh car writing okay so you i don't know i don't think we've talked about this but i'm a very big formula one fan and it was today that i learned that you can actually buy an alpine car which used to be Renault. i'm like i thought those were just formula one cars like you can actually own one of those and my brain just exploded and then i went down this rabbit hole of looking up alpine cars but they don't have them here i guess you have to go overseas to get them so that was a disappointment. <laughs> oh, unfortunate. Uh, yeah. I, in terms of prep, like I, you know, I do similar things. I haven't like necessarily written in someone else's universe per se, but you know, there have been times where I decided I want to write a book like author X. Uh, the, the current one is John Grisham. I want to write a John Grisham style book, not necessarily a legal thriller. I just want to ape his style a little and learn from him. So I embarked on reading like, you know, he's got 45 novels out and a whole bunch of short stories. And so I've been reading through his entire catalog uh, and watching every interview uh, that he's ever done and, and uh, getting into his headspace. I, I did the same. I've done the same thing with just about any author that I really admired um, and, and just devoured their entire body of work to, to pick up on the rhythm of how they do it and, you know, their word choices and things like that. How about music? You know, here's the thing. I'm a big music guy. Last night, I actually watched uh, Amazon Prime had a thing on 007 music. They went through all the history of the different James Bond movies with the music. And it's like those movies would just be a shell if it didn't have that music. It is just such an integral part. It's so iconic. 
Is there a certain music that you listen to when you're writing, perhaps, or trying to get psyched up to like write a specific book? I, I'm terrible. All I listen to is a thunderstorm soundtrack, so it's basically white noise <laughs> the whole the whole time I'm writing. Um, mainly because if I listen to music, it, the the you know that rhythm basically comes out in in what I'm writing too. So you know, if I'm listening to heavy metal, I'm going to write you know in a way that's going to sort of reflect heavy metal. Um, if there's lyrics, forget about it. That would totally throw me off. Um, the James Bond stuff is is very unique because, you know, first of all, a lot of it's in minor chords, um, which I think a lot of people don't realize. But like you could take a normal song and if you play it in minor chords, it sounds like a James Bond song, um, you know, so it immediately stands out. You know, if you hear 10 songs on the radio and nobody tells you, most likely you can pick out the one that's going to either you know, be from a jump James Bond movie or or, or should be. Um, so I, I think that's a, a big part of that. Um, I've got a lot of friends, though, that, that do that. They'll create a playlist for a specific, you know, the book that they're working on. A lot of them post it, you know, online. Like these are the songs I listened to while I was writing it. Yeah, they do those Spotify playlists. I'm like you. I, I use a white noise. Um, but with some exceptions, so I have something that I'm working on where just some of the chapters I'm trying to get in the pretty dark and like on the horror side. And I was laughing because I like I do. I listen to thrash metal when I'm writing those scenes. I mean, the vocals are so growl. I don't know what they're saying anyways. But yeah, I put the liquid metal on for those specific chapters while I'm writing. Yeah, I, I listen to a ton of um, like lo-fi hip hop for just general writing. Uh, but when I, I've noticed that when I get to a point where I, I want an, some intensity in a scene, I switch to epic, uh, soundtracks, you know, uh, mo movie soundtracks that are like heavily dramatic. Um, and there's tons of playlists for that on Spotify and YouTube. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually interesting cause I didn't know I was doing that for a long time, but it came up recently that, you know, for general writing, I like stuff that's upbeat and energetic that keeps me going. And then when it's time to really kill somebody, uh, I get the dramatic music going. <laughs> so is for any of you, do you have a favorite Bond song, like a performer? And it, I went down that rabbit hole when I was doing the research before I interviewed her. And I was just like, oh, that's right. Paul McCartney and Wings. Uh, Tom Jones. That's her favorite. And Duran Duran did one too, right? I think. And, mm -hmm. yeah. A View to a Kill, yeah. yes. Even Adele did a Bond song. She did. I imagine JD. for singers, it's a rite of passage, right? You, I would. Yeah. Hey, do you, hey, do you want to do it? You know, it's it's like, do you want to do the Super Bowl halftime show? Do you want to write a James Bond song? You know, it's it's one of those things. I think every singer wants to check off their bucket list. Well, they even put Madonna in one of the James Bond movies. She sang the theme, and then she was like, she had a short little thing that was like a fencing deal i forget which james bond movie that was but she was in there I, I i totally geeked out with her on this you know my favorite was garbage because their recording um studio was in madison wisconsin where i lived and every, everyone was like oh it's on east washington avenue oh that's it there's like it's just a brick building you would have no idea it's a recording studio and they used to be firetown before they were garbage and that was like the band i'd go see when i was in college so a little bit of memories there. That's cool. I liked when she was talking about like her escape routes and stuff. That brought back some childhood because I used to do it, but not on the bond side, more on the Q side. I'd always be like, how would I rig this so I could like send a secret message or like hide a weapon? <laughs> so I totally identified when she was talking about that. <laughs> I, I do that now. When I'm at the DMV, I'm trying to figure out like what can I use to get out of this place? <laughs> yeah, I think everybody does that at the DMV.
I'm like Jason Bourne in that one scene where he's trying to figure out who he is. And he's like, I'm sitting here in this, you know, this particular booth. He took, took the one in the back with a view of the, the front door. Like he, he like basically every entrance, every exit, map it all out. Like I'm sort of that guy. Like I, I can't sit with my back to anybody in, in a restaurant. Yeah. Same. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, a that's that old, that's that Vietnam history, man. Yeah. Back in Nam. Yeah, I found it interesting that, you know, the Fleming family told her to modernize Bond and give it like a cast of characters. It was it's almost, you know, it's like a a Marvel movie or, you know, is it going to turn into that where you're going to have like five or six double O's all working together? Because, you know, old James Bond, he's a lone wolf. Yeah. Felix, the CIA guy, you know, will interject every now and then. But for the most part, it's Bond you know, trying to save the world from, you know, X, Y, or Z. And now you have like this big cast of people. And I was looking at some of the reviews for the books and there's a little bit of pushback with that. Well, I think what's honestly going on there is, you know, James Bond has been redone. What what do we have now? Four or five different versions of basically the same, like retelling of the same stories. Um, And I I think at this point, they're just being business savvy. They're realizing we need to branch out a little bit more. We can't go back to Casino Royale and start over with another actor. I mean, they they could and they might. Um, But if they can come up with a double O, you know, some new character that that jumps out of that, you know, that might be a second franchise or a third franchise. Um, You know, they had talked about a female James Bond, um, you know, and that's been tossed around Hollywood. There's scripts that have been floating around forever, um, but nobody bites on it because, you know, James Bond is James Bond. You can't just, you know, put a, a woman in that that particular part and, and call it a day. Um, what they could do is have a female double O. Um, sure. You know, that comes they out have of nowhere that. that somehow challenges it. Yeah. So like that's you know, and I think they're just looking for that. They're fishing for that iconic character that just hasn't been found yet. Just some kind of breakaway hit that can create another franchise. Well, and there, yeah, there was a rumor uh, like last summer that they, that they were going to cast some a, a female actress or someone uh, as 007, not as James Bond, you know, because the number is not necessarily that person. So. Uh, and that does make sense. I mean, that, you know, from from a certain standpoint, I think people are still going to be really, really upset. Yeah. Uh, but if you did a kind of passing of the torch thing, you know, people don't seem to be all that set at the idea of Indiana Jones passing the, the fedora along to someone else. Uh, so I think there's room for it. Well, they, they did it in the last um, uh, last James Bond movie. There was, you know, he basically lost a 007 designation. It went to a woman mm-hmm. for for a little little amount of time and they worked together and then he eventually got it back. Um, I think that was kind of their way of just kind of tongue in cheek saying, you know, well, we did it. We tried it, but I don't think we're going to take it any further. Oh, OK. All right. Well, maybe that's where that rumor came from. I didn't see that film. <laughs> see, I think Casino Royale broke a lot of ground because before Bonds were kind of cutesy or, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, it, it was kind of the same old story time after time. And if you remember the beginning of Casino Royale, this is Daniel Craig being introduced as James Bond, where he has to kill that guy. And there's that fight scene in the bathroom. That's as gritty. And as, it, James Bond was never that gritty before. You know, he'd shoot somebody from a long distance. He'd poison them. He'd do whatever. This was hands on. You know, this is actually killing somebody. This is fighting for your life. And I was like, I was watching it and I was like all tensed up because if you've never been in a fight like that, you don't understand. And I was just like, holy shit, they're getting it right. I was in shock. 
And well, that's actually it's it's honestly it's another Hollywood you know, trick for lack of a better word. I mean they they've done it with Batman. You know, like if you think of the original Batman TV series, right. every, every version of him gets darker and grittier and harder. Um, they just did it with Superman to a certain extent, and I can guarantee the next Superman is going to definitely cross that line. It's going to be a much different Superman than we saw before. Um, they're recasting Wonder Woman. It's going to be the same thing. It's it's basically Hollywood pushing the envelope because if they don't change it up, if they give us you know more of the the same. You know, people aren't going to flock to it, but they make that little bit of a tweak. You know, it's, it's a known commodity. Again, they, they know that it works. They know that people will be talking about it. But I think they almost went too far with Daniel Craig. He, he just looked very unhappy, like the last couple of bonds that he was doing. And, you know, one of my friends is like, well, he's probably can't eat carbs. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. He's a very unhappy <laughs> man because he's got to be like James Bond, for God's sakes. See, not eating carbs gets you very crabby. But, you know, he almost became too soft for me. You know, James Bond is a loner. He's a womanizer. He's a loner. He's not a nice person. He's an assassin. You know, it's for God and queen or king. And everything else, he doesn't care. He uses people. Now, all of a sudden, he has feelings and this and that. And it's like... You know, I, I, that kind of pushed me back a little bit. It was a big change for sure as a, a Bond fan. I was like, oh, the, you know, because he's always had a flat arc and they tried to give him an arc in the last movie and make him yep. more of a family man. So it was definitely an interesting um, choice. Right. But we'll see how all this plays out. Yeah. So, J.D., who's up next week? Uh, next week, we've got Brendan Novak. She's a New York Times bestselling author, winner of the National Reader's Choice Award, uh, one of the, the booksellers best awards. Uh, her 75th novel is coming out. It's called The Seaside Library, releases April 11th. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersinkpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.